The beauty of the internet. All of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. French philosopher Blaise Pascal. Dirk van Avalt, when I was reading through his, uh, doing a bit of research into his life, he says he spends most of his time, his working time, looking at a blank wall. Do you do the same kind of thing? Do you spend time sitting in a room alone? Yes. Now, I do spend a lot of time sitting alone in a room. Um, I think that's important, quiet time alone. There's, there's no doubt about that. You need to think through things in your mind, get them right, and put them down on a piece of paper. And you can't do that with a bunch of people around you running around shouting and stuff. But then you also have to go out and test these ideas with other people. So it's both. You can't, it's not the one or the other. And it depends on, again, it depends on, on your own personality. As I was trying to illustrate uh, the difference between value investors and growth investors generally is um, growth investors like to move in a crowd. They like to buy the popular things that everybody agrees with. Uh, and that's fine. If you can do that well, that's a good process. That's a good philosophy. Uh, whereas value investors, as myself, tend to be more isolated and alone. And you actually have to force yourself to get out there to talk to people about your ideas and that sort of thing. But it's both. It's like David Shapiro's on TV often and you're not. <laughs> That's just because he looks a lot better than I do. <laughs> well, I don't think he would debate that either. But, but when you were talking about rebosis, I, I was wondering, and it, it, it brought up the, uh, the idea about, and it's come through this conference a few times, financial statements. How? Huh? Trustworthy are they nowadays, given this, this number of, of instances no. of uh, areas where they have not been giving us the truth? Yeah, I think it's quite clear that you can't trust financial statements on the face of it. I think, uh, as I said earlier, you have to take financial statements after studying them properly and then go and look at the business and speak to the management of the business and then these things have to tie up. Then. They're a big help. I mean, make no mistake, you need financial statements. And probably 95% of the time, they're fine. And they're accurate. 4% of the, no, let me rephrase that. 70% of the time, they're fine, they're accurate, and you can work off them, and it's fine. 25% of the time, they're too complex because of IFRS to even understand, so you need to go and get some help for a non-accountant like myself. And 5% of the time, they are misleading. Uh, so it's not, it's not often, but they can be misleading. And the only way to find out if financial statements are misleading, is to go and tie those numbers up with what management is saying and doing. They have to tie up. And if they don't make sense, then you walk away. Steinhoff? They didn't tie up. How did you know it and not too many other people didn't? Um, look, I can't take credit for knowing. Um, I was highly criticized at the time for not owning Steinhoff, by the way. Um, most people felt I was being dumb because there was a strong consensus out there in the market that Steinhoff was a great business. But there were all sorts of red flags, especially in the cash flow statement, over a long period of time. And the other thing that was happening was regular acquisitions and regular funding operations, you know, either debt or equity raisings was happening. So most businesses can sustain themselves with their own internally generated cash flow and can make acquisitions and pay dividends from that internally generated cash flow. Every now and then you have to go to the market if you want to do a big transaction to raise equity via share placing or possibly debt. But those, you don't do that very often. But Steinhoff is doing it like 
in one year, I forget the number, in one year, I think Marcus did like 35 acquisitions, small ones and big ones, and was continually, continually raising funding via equity and debt. And that's, that's a red flag, number one. And then, as I mentioned, the cash flow statements never really tied up to the income statements and what was happening in the business. Um, and, and so I didn't know anything. There was nothing wrong. There was just red flags. And when you see red flags, um, you stay away. Because the thing is, you don't have to invest in everything. You should only invest in the things you understand and that you're comfortable with. And if something makes you uncomfortable, you stay away. I've been uncomfortable about many companies in the past, which has turned out to be wrong. Those companies have gone on to do wonderful things. So the fact that I didn't invest in Steinhoff doesn't, it wasn't because I was a brilliant analyst and understood there was something wrong there. It just, I was uncomfortable with the situation. There were some red flags I didn't like, so I chose not to invest. And that's basically as, as simple as it is. Peter, I, through the work I do, I've met many people, and I, I, I have a theory that all of us are like onions. Some people manage to remove layers of the onion until they get down to perhaps the core truth is at the bottom. Now, you don't get anybody who's, who's perfect, yeah, yeah. But, but you've removed a lot of layers of, of your onion. How? I don't know. It's just uh, probably years of practice, years of continual practice, and um, through good times and bad times. Uh, you learn to do this, and you learn not to get carried away with your own successes and your own failures, because in investing, you are going to have failures as well. Um, and if you can look at both successes and failures and understand where they come from, then I think you can deal with these layers that you speak of. And you can unpack things and you can see things uh, from your perspective as they are. And now everybody's got a different perspective. And mine isn't the only correct perspective. But from my perspective, I can unpack things and try and understand them as they are. What did you learn from the criticism that you were subjected to? Not that long ago. Yeah, yeah not that long ago. Look, uh, a lot of that criticism was justified. I mean, I did go out too far on a limb. I was not diversified enough. With the benefit of hindsight, our investment, my investment position was correct. We were heavily into resources at the end of 2015, and we were Anglo-American was trading at 50 rand a share at the end of 2015. Today, it is at it's touching 800 now, I think. Um, so we were right, but we were too early. And as they say in the classics, the difference between wrong and too early is indistinguishable. So what I learned from that was not to be, go, when you've got high conviction and idea, not to go all out on a limb with client money, with other people's money, because they don't like it when it looks wrong for a while. And to be right, unfortunately, sometimes you have to look wrong for a while. And if that while lasts too long, your clients can't take it. So that was a big lesson I learned there. You said one of the, and I, I've heard this for decades now from you, don't lose money. Mm. And the second point, don't forget point number one. But where do you, where do you draw the line on don't lose money? Because you're a value investor. You, you invest in companies who... By definition, you're never going to get the timing absolutely yeah, yeah. right. And they continue to slide, or the share prices continue to slide. Yeah. So where do you, do you so impose that, that's stop an losses? Question, yeah. uh, no, I don't use stop losses. Um, if, so when you buy the shares of a business and the share price continues to go down, um, you can do one of three things. You can continue to buy 
if you apply your research and you're sure you're right, you can continue to buy up to a point where you, because you don't want to, again, become too undiversified. The second thing is you can accept the share price decline and wait for it to go up again at some point in the future. Or the third thing you can do is you can redo your analysis and if you were wrong, then you can sell. Those are the different alternatives. But the one thing, and that goes back to a quote from Ben Graham, an investment operation is one where upon thorough analysis, you can have the safety of principle. So I would say that when I do the work on each investment I make, I know that my capital at least is safe in most future eventualities. Not in all because funny things happen, but in most future eventualities the capital will be safe. So if you're buying something like Anglo-American in 2015 when its book value is 200 Rand, and maybe the mines are slightly overvalued in the books, but they're not way overvalued. Maybe it's only worth 150 Rand. It's trading 50 Rand, and it goes to 30 Rand. On paper, you lost 40% of your money, but your principal, what, what it's worth, is still 150 or 200 Rand. That's the value of what you bought. So you need to understand that. So that is not losing money. Although the share price has gone from 50 to 30, if you still own the shares, you haven't lost money. It's only if you sell them at 30 Rand that you've lost the money. And eventually, you know, as these cycles go, and, and you have cycles in all companies, whether it's a growth company or a value company, so-called growth company, value, there's cycles in these, in these businesses. And cycles are important to understand. Um, uh, and so if you can buy a, uh, an asset which upon thorough analysis promises safety of principle, I think you haven't lost money. Peter, it was, I thought it was a bit of out of character when we spoke some time ago and you said you should be putting 1% to 2% of your portfolio into cryptocurrencies. Yeah. You heard Stafford this morning. Mm -hmm. Are you going to now put 3 to 4% or no. 5 to 6%? No, no, no. My view hasn't changed. I mean, I agree with a lot of what Stafford said. I also, you know, I think he painted one side of the, of the picture. There, there are other sides as well. There's counter arguments for a lot of those things. I don't think it's a sure thing. I think there are problems as well. For instance, it costs a lot of money to transact in cryptocurrencies and to do transactions and to buy NFTs. At the, the frictional costs are still very high, but that can go down. I mean, we all remember in the early days of the internet when you were dial-up modems, you'd put the, that telephone receiver on, remember telephones? Put the telephone receiver on the modem and it'd take you five minutes and you'd download like two emails. You know, that was the internet. 20 years ago. So that can change. Uh, but so, so there are criticisms right now. But I, I, I think it is uh, an asset, uh, crypto, with a binary outcome. It could be worthless or it could be worth a lot. How much of your portfolio put in that? I wouldn't be comfortable with more than 1 or 2%, but that's my view. Um, other people have different risk tolerances and different views on that, and that's not to say that's incorrect. That's just my view. But at least to have a stake. I think one should have exposure to it because I think the underlying technology makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, decentralization is definitely a trend that I think we should all support. Um, I think it, uh, it, it makes sense. So, yeah, uh, but how you do it uh, is very important. Now, I'm pretty sure people here who, went to, who came to the first and the second conference are wanting to know about your bundles mm. and your branches in those bundles. Just explain that concept, yeah. if you would, and then uh, update, because 
I've got a lot of friends who've made a lot of money out of your little <laughs> twigs. Yeah. So, so the way I look at my portfolio is, is exactly that. It's a, it's a bundle of twigs. In fact, that's the sort of, uh, when I do PowerPoint presentations, um, I use that as a sort of a background. It's just a bundle of twigs tied up with a string. And if you look at each share in the portfolio, that's represented by a twig. Now, each share, whether it's a blue chip or a small cap, each share is individually fragile. Things can happen to such a company which might not break it, but it could bend it, it could hurt it, it could uh, make the share price or the value of that company go down and the share price will follow the value down. That can happen to any individual company because of a pandemic, because of Russia invading Ukraine, because of any type of event that we just cannot forecast. You can't forecast these things. So again, the way to manage that risk is to take those little twigs and bundle them all together, tie it up, and then you come up with a robust configuration. That bundle of twigs is a robust, it, it doesn't break easily. Because if your portfolio is properly diversified across risk factors, across geographies, across business sectors, then when Russia invades Ukraine and Russian shares become worthless, it doesn't, you know, your portfolio, and, and you have some Russian exposure in your portfolio, property risk management, you have a small portion, and your portfolio might go down by a percent or two, and you're fine. If a pandemic happens and you've got a small exposure to property, your portfolio goes down by a little bit, but it doesn't carry you out. So each asset, each individual stock is a twig, and the portfolio is that bundle of twigs. And the size and the thickness of the twig corresponds to the size of the stock in the portfolio. So that's, that's the mental construct I use to describe the portfolio. And that's why it's important to buy a portfolio of assets. And, not, you know, and we'll probably talk about some shares here today. But I'm bullish on, I don't know, rebosis. But I could be completely wrong and these guys could be deceiving us with a transaction and it could be, turn out to be worthless. I mean, that's, that is a possible outcome. Um, so whichever shares I talk about here today or in passing in the corridors, uh, don't bet the ranch on it because um, it just might not work. How many twigs in the bundle? I, at the moment, I've got quite a few. I, I think I'll own about 70 shares in the portfolio. That's just the African portfolio. But I've got a long tail of small position in small cap stocks uh, where I don't want to have a big position because you get stuck with liquidity situations and... Um, you know, it, it, it can become a problem. So I've got a long tail of small caps um, and then um, some large cap stocks make up the top 10. It, almost half the portfolio is made up of 13 or 14 large cap stocks. Uh, maybe you can just update us on a couple of your twigs that yeah. you had yeah. from the last couple of conferences. So I think last time we spoke about, uh, Lewis was one of the companies we spoke about, still, you know, the guys are executing well. Um, I think they, they are both good retailers and good uh, financial service providers. They obviously lend money to their clients against the furniture they buy. They, they run a good book, financial book, and they run a good retail operation, which is a nice combination. The business itself is probably not financed optimally. In other words, it's probably got too much equity and too little debt on the balance sheet, but that's fine, that's conservative. Remember safety of principle, it's important. Um, so I still like it, it's still trading below liquidation value. You could buy, and I think I pointed out last time, 
you can walk in there and buy the whole business at the current share price, liquidate the company, and you'd end up with more money than you paid for it. So it's not even priced like a going concern, although it is one of the last remaining furniture retailers in the country, and there's a place of furniture retailers. Their competition has all gone bankrupt over the past 10 years. JD Group, Potestinoff, um, what's the one that the African bank bought bankrupt? Um, Ellerins. Ellerins, yeah. So the competition is gone, or by and large gone. And, and that's great, you know, no supply, demand for the product, and they're doing fine. So that's one uh, I spoke about. Um, Avenge? Avenge uh, came out with results just recently, which I think the market took as disappointing. They probably were slightly disappointing. Um, but it's, you know, I still maintain it was trading at five or six or three cents, four cents, I don't know, around about there. Uh, it, it did have a share consolidation recently. I, it, I think it's probably worth. Um, 30 rand a share now, and that translates to about, I think it was a... F about six cents. Six, uh, six or seven cents, yeah. Six or seven cents. That's probably what it's worth and as a going concern. And I, I, I think it might have a tailwind in future if some construction activity happens in South Africa. So the steel business is doing well. They're probably going to sell that, so there'll be cash coming in. So I think it's fine at the current share price around about 18 to 20 rand. It was up at 25 rand at some point. Uh, I think it's still fine. I still hold it. Still own it. Bullwin? Bullwin has been a disappointment. It's one of those twigs that hasn't broken, but it's, uh, it's a bit out of shape, if I could put it that way. Um, that one is also trading at below liquidation value. But if I look at the accounts and I look at what's happening on the ground and I look at management actions, I'm not quite happy with things are going there. Um, management are too promotional and that promotional activity doesn't reflect in the numbers. Uh, so it's not adding up. Underspent, underspent. It's interesting, Johnny Rabi, you recall, he said no, he wouldn't touch it. With yeah, the no, he was right. Yeah? He was right. At that point. 100% right. Last question from my side and then put your hand up and the microphones will come to you. You pointed out the transaction capital was one of your favorite stocks yeah. and that they'd done a fantastic deal with yeah. We Buy Cars. So we had Dirk here, and I, I spoke to him in the uh, preamble to, yeah. to... I never said to him, Dirk, Pitt says you guys sold too cheap. Have you had a chance to <laughs> engage with him? No, I haven't. No, I haven't. I, I, I actually did speak to him about, uh, about another matter at, uh, a while ago. But no, I never had a chance to engage with him. Look, I mean, um, it's easy when you stand outside a business and they do a transaction to say, are oh, you selling it too cheap or too expensive, you're paying too much, whatever. So it's easy to criticize transactions from outside. But when you're in a business and you're doing transactions and you're busy buying something or you're busy selling your own business, there's a lot of factors at work. And I wasn't an insider to any of those factors that are at work. You know, business is a messy thing. You know, we see share prices and names next to the share price and the share price going up and down and we think, yeah, you know, that's what's happening. But it's like that duck on water, you know, the duck's just floating along, but underneath those feet are paddling quite hectically. That's how business works. Business is hectic. And there's all sorts of things that happen which we as outside passive minority investors don't know about. Um, so, you know, I, from an outsider, to me, it looked like they sold too cheaply, not by, uh, not by a factor of 10 or something, you know, maybe 10 or 15% too cheap, 
but they sold too cheaply. But maybe there were some other things on the go there. So who knows? Sounding board time. Would you trade a holding in, say, Wilson Bailey or Avenge for transaction capital? No, I think they're different businesses uh, with different drivers, um, and I wouldn't replace the one with the other. I think in terms of building a portfolio, there's a place for both of them in the portfolio. Right, let's start with a question at the very back. I'm Roland Pratdacher. I have actually a, a short question and then another one. The first one is, how do you determine on value investing your discounted future cash flow for the next 10 years? The other one is, do you consider 10 different positions in a private uh, portfolio enough or should it be 15 or 20? Yeah. And then I have another one, sorry. <laughs> the, this concerns uh, Alex latest portfolio he proposed with tech, with tech shares. Uh, and I keep that one for David Shapiro, please. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we're okay. on the other, we, we're in a different camp. Uh, okay, on, and good. I'm joking, All I'm right, joking. No, no, Roland, Roland, I was joking, please. I'm happy, I'm happy to talk about tech. Oh, well, you're joking, okay. <laughs> no, it was a short question. It's the, it, it refers to the expression catching a folding knife. Um, I did. I took your 10 or 12 shares that you um, uh, put on your website in end of December, and I made a, a sample portfolio with them, exactly as you did, $10,000. Shortly thereafter, beginning of January, these shares all, the, the whole tech sector dropped. And yet you, in a second tranche, you still went on board your second tranche. Um, is it With my own money, better? by the way, and a third tranche. Uh-huh, and, and a third, money, okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, what is the, I know there is a rationale behind it, uh, but wouldn't it be better when you have a trend that's falling to wait for a month and go the next months or following months? Okay, well, that's not that's a question it. to pit. <laughs> but anyway, I'll, I'm finished I'll, now. <laughs> I'll give you the, the, the response to that. So, so um, this kind of cash flows, uh, how, how do you do that? Uh, it's, it's not hard. It, it, when you understand a business, you understand their revenue opportunity they have, whatever the business is. Say it's a car dealership. You understand how many cars they on average will sell this year and if they grow by... the economy rate of growth, say five or six percent nominal. You can project those cash flows into the future. You know what the margin of a car dealership is, probably around three to six percent. You can work out their margin, look at the balance sheet, deduct tax, deduct interest, that's the cash flow. Um, work out what they need to reinvest for new stock, um, the capital requirements. What you want to get to is a free cash flow of the business, which you can do upon analysis, understanding the business. And you can project that out to the future because most of these businesses will grow along with the economy. And the economy grows at a fairly steadily, at a fairly steady nominal rate every year. I mean, we all get excited about GDP numbers which come out and it's down 3%, but those are annualized quarterly figures. Uh, the economy sort of grows. Some years it's flat, but it grows by 3 to 5 to 6% per annum. And you can build those growth rates into your projections. And, this, and then you must work out for yourself what you think your discount rate is. My, I have very low expectations. So I use quite a high discount rate. I use 15%. Uh, 
but it's up to you to decide what discount. There isn't a rule which says this is the right rate or that's the right rate. It's your own personal preference and your own risk tolerance which will determine what discount rate you use. Uh, and then you discount those cash, and that's the value of the business. It's as simple as that. It's, it's no more, no less. And whether it's a student apartment or a car dealership or a shoe business, uh, it, it boils down to the same type of analysis. So, so that's that. In terms of diversification, I think there's been studies shown that I think it's like 17 or 20 shares gives you good enough diversification that if you add any more to that, um, you're, not you're not getting any more benefits of straight up diversifi diversification against the market. Uh, I tend to buy more shares than that because um, of liquidity constraints in the market. You know, if all the shares are big and very liquid, then I'd have a lot fewer shares, 20 or 25. But because a lot of the value situations in Africa are so, so, um, so small and so illiquid, you can't fill up your portfolio with those stocks because if the clients want their money back, you, you, when you're running a unit trust, you always have to be in a position to be able to be able to give the client their money back. And if you're sitting with a whole bunch of illiquid stocks, you can't do that. So that's a risk you need to manage as well. So anywhere for, you know, property diversification, anywhere from 20 stocks up is, I, I would say 10 is probably too few, theoretically. And, but again, that depends on your own risk tolerance because everybody is different. Uh, and then if I can just touch on the last question, um, just because you buy something and the share price goes down doesn't mean you're wrong. And also, if you say, let's rather wait for the share price to go down before we buy, at what point do you buy? How far down does it have to go before you buy? How do you know you're at the bottom? You, and what I'm trying to say is you don't know. When you buy an asset and the share price moves, it doesn't prove whether you're right or wrong. If you buy an asset and the share price goes up, it means nothing. You're not, you're not right. You'll be able to say you're right in five years' time or ten years' time. Then you can say, you were right. Anglos was 50 Rand in 2015, and in 2022, it's 750 Rand. You were right. You can say that. But if you buy a share in January and the share price goes down by the end of January, you're not right or wrong. Or any, it, it's meaningless. It means nothing at all. That's my opinion on that, on the, on, in that issue. Next question. Hi, Pete. Uh, my name is Enrico Knussen. I'm from Stellenbosch. Uh, you must please forgive me, maybe this is a curved ball. <laughs> Those are the best ones. Uh, can you explain the rationale for investing in the CNA and what the expected future is for CNA? Yeah. So I can tell you what the expected future for CNA is very poor. Uh, it's probably as bad as you can think it is. Um, so we invested in, in CNA and this was in our private investment company, uh, not in the Counterpoint Unit Trust. We invest in CNA because uh, a person brought the transaction to us and we structured it so that if something went wrong, we could walk away without having put any money in. In other words, we would not lose money. All that we lost was time, time in dealing with people who turned out to be not great people. So we invested on the basis of a structured, tran structured transaction which had no downside and if it worked out, uh, we could have made quite a bit of money. As it turns out, it didn't work out and the structure saved us from losing money. So, you know, it, as investments go, we're quite happy with that one. Uh, also, the other, where are the other microphones? 
Is one in the front? Danita, right here in front. Okay. Hi, Pete. Cameron here. So I know you're a big fan of Warren Buffett, and uh, one of my favorite quotes of, of his is, it's only when the tide goes out when you see who's been swimming naked. So my question to you to today is, who in the market is currently swimming naked? And um, just as an add-on question, you describe the value of a business as the present value of all future discounted cash flows. Based on that description, I just struggle to understand why you hold crypto, because it produces no cash flow. Neither does gold, by the way. So yeah, I just want to get, why do we hold assets that we don't fundamentally believe in actually hold asset value? So let me ask you, answer the second part of the question first, crypto, gold, currency. Why, why, why would you hold currency? Um, because it also doesn't produce cash flows. Unless you can, but you know, in the US and Europe right now, in fact, banks, you pay banks to put money in the bank. So money is the same thing. The reason, um, the, the future cash flows for an asset like gold or Bitcoin or even cash um, is that there is a circumstance or a set of circumstances in the future where you can sell that asset for much more than you paid for it today. And that's the cash flow. So it's a bullet cash flow five or ten years down the line. And if the present value of that bullet cash flow ten years down the line is a lot more than the current price, well, then it's an investment. Uh, and that's how one would think about investing in gold or, or any asset that doesn't produce a regular stream of cash flows like stocks do with dividends. Uh, so, so that's the rationale for that. Um, there is a certain set of circumstances under which Bitcoin can be worth a lot of money. And it's those set of circumstances which will make other parts of your portfolio worth a lot less money. So it's a nice hedge against certain types of outcomes. Um, and the first, what was the first part of the question? I forget that now. Just uh, repeat it, please, Cameron. Oh, who's oh. oh, no, you'll only find out afterwards. I think we're busy, we're busy finding out in certain tech-type stocks that people have been swimming naked. We're busy finding that out. But that, those, those things are only really evident in hindsight, and then it's fun to talk about it if you weren't involved in them. But um, it, those are only evident in hindsight. But, we, it, but I can guess that when stocks are trading at... 50 times revenue uh, and crazy numbers like that, then people are swimming naked. Uh, somewhere people are swimming naked. And we'll find out where. Uh, good afternoon, Pete. It's Alan. Uh, I want to ask you two questions. One is what's your opinion on um, metals in the cycle, industrial metals rather than precious metals, yeah. with a reference to MERAF. And the other question is, do you ever adjust your discount rate, to, which is affected by interest rates generally? Mm. Yeah, so the outlook for the commodity cycle, uh, base metals, industrial metals, I, I'm quite positive on that outlook there. Um, and it's to do with the supply of commodities generally, uh, and specifically base metals, industrial metals. Um, I think it's useful when you think about a cycle to think about the supply of an asset, not the demand for asset. Most assets that have been, you know, non-new assets, you know, like when the new iPhone came out, when the iPhone came out in 2007, this demand for it was inelastic and infinite. But for something that's been around for years and years and years, the demand for that asset generally grows with the economy over time. So it's a Demand is pretty steady for those sort of things. 
So you can't analyze cycles in terms of demand. So, oh, China's demand is going to drop, therefore the demand for the assets is going to drop. Or um, maybe because of the war in Ukraine, demand for this is going to drop. I think that's a wrong uh, framing of the problem. The correct framing of the problem is, what is the market doing in terms of supplying enough of the product to satisfy the market? Market's natural demand for that product. And if the supply is too much or too little, prices will adjust to make supply meet demand. And what's happening in most commodity markets right now is supply is constrained. Supply is constrained for a number of reasons. Uh, the first reason is ESG considerations. Nobody wants a new mine or a new oil well to be drilled, like this ridiculousness off the East Coast here with Shell being stopped from getting interdicted against them drilling a, uh, a well there or, or doing sonic testing and stuff. We're going to be hungry and cold, and then we're going to want that gas. So that, in a microcosm, is what's happening in the world. They can't drill new oil wells. Nobody wants a new mine in their backyard. But in the meantime, we all want electric vehicles, and we all, all want wind turbines. We all want um, photo, uh, photovoltaic um, generating systems. But those things take metal, and they take oil to create, to create the plastics with, and they need energy to build. And they, you know, they need all sorts of commodities to build those things. But we're not allowed to produce those commodities because of ESG consideration, because of fish in the ocean and things like that. And we're going to end up being cold and hungry like what's happening in Europe. And prices are going to go up a lot. They've already started going up a lot in oil and other commodities. And I think that will continue until people are cold and hungry enough to say, okay, you can drill that oil well now. We need that energy. We can't cope without that energy. We need more iron and steel to build wind turbines. We need more whatever. Um, uh, ferromanganese for the aluminium and for the steel to build this whole new electrical network that we need to build to have clean energy. Prices will adjust to create the incentive to produce those commodities, but it hasn't happened yet. And prices are up a lot, and still mines are paying out dividends, buying back shares, and not investing in even maintaining capacity. I mean, the reserves of most mines are declining. They're not even investing in maintaining the reserves, let alone expanding the reserves. So I, I can see a, a long time period that prices for most commodities will be at elevated levels until supply is incentivized. So that's, sorry, that's a long-winded answer, but that's what's happening out there in the market. And the question Dis on... Discount rate. Uh, sorry, discount rate, yes. I, I think you can adjust your discount rate based on circumstances. Um, yeah, so if inflation is 5, you'll have a different uh, discount rate than when inflation is 20%. There's no doubt about that. Uh, hi, Pete, Gary here. Um, th there's been quite a procession of the JSE recently, and, and more news this week of, of what used to be a small to mid-cap, and now yeah. a large cap leaving. <laughs> d d the question is, does this, does this make your job easier, or does it make it more difficult? Um. That's a good question. It, it makes it more difficult in that choice becomes less. Um, so there's only like 250 investable shares in the JC left. Um, but if you look again at the supply and demand situation, there is a very low supply of equity to invest in for investors in South Africa right now, which means that over time prices will have to go up because 
it's going to have to incentivize um, companies to list again. Uh, companies, if prices stay low, which means share prices are low, which means cost of capital high, which means returns to investors high, if that stays that way, that's a great place to be because you're going to earn fat returns. Um, so by and large, when you have delistings happening and the supply of stocks contracting, it means assets are cheap because entrepreneurs are not interested in selling equity to me and you at low prices. They'd rather buy it back from us and go private. The time to be wary of the market is when there's lots of new listings and people coming to market because entrepreneurs and business people are smart. They know the cost of capital. If capital is cheap and people are willing to finance their business at ridiculous uh, rates of return, they will take advantage of it and they will sell the equity to you. That's what an IPO is, the entrepreneur selling his business to you, the investor. It's not being nice to you. He's selling a part of his business at a high price. That's the dynamic. And when companies are going private, that guy's not being ugly to you. All he's doing is he is buying back his business because he recognizes it's massively undervalued. So again, that is the meta narrative of what's happening right now. Businesses are cheap, they're undervalued, and entrepreneurs are taking the price. They're buying the whole business themselves because investors couldn't care about it. Final question in the front. Pete, um, Jan Forbes my name. Hi, Ian. Um, if you were going to invest uh, a substantial amount of money now, what would your spread be between offshore investing and yeah. SA investing? That's a very good question. Uh, and uh, um, I do manage a fund which does exactly that. Uh, called and one other question, yeah. if okay, I may sorry. just add to it. I'm so excited to hear that question, I just want to start answering. <laughs> you mentioned Lewis being, um, let's call it lazy balance sheet, too much uh, equity, too little debt. What would your view be on debt to equity as a ratio? Yeah. Thank you. Okay, so, so the first question in terms of how much would you own offshore versus onshore, again, that's every person has, every person has different circumstances and has different liabilities that they need to make sure they can meet. If all your liabilities are in South Africa, it would be irrational to have all your assets offshore. Because there is a chance I'm not saying it's a high chance, that, but there is a chance that the RAND can appreciate significantly from here, where it is today. There, there is a world in which the RAND strengthens a lot. That world, interestingly enough, is one in which there are global capital controls, there's wars on the go, commodity prices are very high and we produce lots of commodities. That's sort of an environment in which the RAND could potentially be strong. So if you, lots of if you have lots of liabilities in South Africa, you would be irrational to have all your money offshore. So you need to, again, manage your risk. Um, for me right now, in terms of a pure investment view, given the cheapness of assets in South Africa versus the expensiveness of most offshore assets, specifically U.S. assets being very expensive, right now I'm running that fund at about 40% local, 60% offshore. And the 60% offshore has almost no exposure to the U.S. It's mainly emerging market exposure and commodity exposure. But that is, that's a fund I manage, and that's my view, and my own money is invested in that fund, so that's my personal approach. Different people have different approaches and different risk profiles and, and different risk appetites, and each one needs to decide that for himself. But one of the factors that you need to take 
cognizance of in this deliberation of how much onshore, how much offshore is assets here are cheap. And secondly, your liabilities are mostly here. And different people have different liability profiles. So that's one question. That debt, very quickly, debt to equity, yeah. Yeah, uh, debt to equity. Look, uh, again, I, I d if, your business if your business can sustain it, you could have 95% debt and 5% equity funding. And the return on the equity would, would be through the roof. It would be fantastic. But if, such a uh, if a business were to be financed in such a risky way uh, and it hits a bump in the road, the banks take control and the banks start calling you shots, and you lose control of your business. So that could lead to very high returns in equity, but it could lead to you also losing control of your business. So, so I would say you want to probably err on the side of conservatism when you finance your business, but it's smart to use at least some debt, because the cost of debt is lower than the cost of equity. Equity is expensive financing. Peter, our time's out, but I can't let you go without giving us an update to the bundle. <laughs> well, I, I think the fact sheet, uh, the fun fact sheet right there in front of you, and some of the most exciting stocks today for me are fairly large cap companies, companies like Exaro, Sassel, uh, um, uh, Tungela, the coal company, well, it's not in the top 10 there, but it's, it's a holding. Energy businesses, I think, are fantastically attractive, especially dirty energy businesses, because supply of energy is constrained, and the prices of those things will continue going up until supplies incentivized. So those things are quite, uh, quite exciting to me. Thank you. Thank you. Pete Fillion.